Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Jesse Keenan from Harvard's Graduate School of Design. Jesse's going to talk about finance in the adaptation sector, and he's going to answer some questions from listeners on the state of adaptation, which I plan on having as a recurring segment on the podcast. Jesse digs into the big issues of adaptation and shares where he thinks we're going in the field. It's a rich, deep dive on adaptation, and you're going to learn a ton. Okay, some upcoming episodes. I'm interviewing tribal representative Kyle White from Michigan State University, and we're going to take a deep dive into indigenous adaptation work and proper ways to engage tribal communities. Also, former cultural resources adaptation coordinator with the National Park Service, Marcy Rockman, will talk about climate change and historic preservation. And I have a super duper exciting episode coming out very soon. It is a very unusual episode, and I know you're going to love it. So stay tuned for that. Okay, adapters, let's join Jesse Keenan and learn about adaptation finance and the overall state of adaptation. Hey, welcome back, adapters. On today's episode, I am very excited to be hosting Jesse Keenan. Jesse is a faculty member at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard University, where he researches and teaches courses in climate change adaptation and the built environment. Jesse is also a member of the IPCC and is a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Hey, Jesse, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, excited to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. It is always a pleasure. You know, I actually looked it up. It's been about two years since you were on for the first time. It's been quite a journey. It has been a journey, both as a listener and as a weekly participant in the America Adapts team uh, of people that uh, I think have supported the, the content and, and, and really the broader engagement with was what now an emerging global community of adapters. Well, I would just like to say when you first reached out, I think I was like five or six months into the podcast. And it, when I got your email, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this Harvard professor is reaching out saying he's a regular listener. It was one of those moments. I'm like, OK, I'm, I'm delivering something useful here. So I just want you to know that was one of the key moments in my head of uh, th there's value here. So thank you for that. Well, it was uh, pure entertainment for me. A lot of really good people on there. Some people were totally full of it. Some people were just blowing my mind. It was a full <laughs> spectrum. And I think that that's the, that's just the nature of reality we all live in. It's kind of deciphering through that. And so I still think it serves that function today. And that's, that's healthy for everybody. Okay. So I want to talk about two things today. You have a new book that you've written and we're going to dig into that. And then hopefully we're going to pivot to a new segment and it's, I'm testing this out with you and it's called the state of adaptation with Jesse Keaton. And so I'm going to basically ask you, and we've already chatted a little bit about this, the big questions in this field. And the goal, if you know, if we really have some useful things to provide there that you'll come back on, we won't wait two years, but you'll come back on a semi-regular basis and we'll kind of re revisit that topic. So hopefully we'll have some fun with that. Yeah, sounds great. I think it's a great opportunity to just give a little bit of reflection. If we think of adaptation as a process, it may be not an outcome. So we're all living in it and going through it. And as uh, Anne Cosmo likes to say, uh, we're adapting together. Oh, Anne. Okay, just so you know, I reached out to some colleagues and listeners at some community groups and such, and I asked for questions for this episode around finance and then just the state of adaptation. And overwhelmingly, I've got the most response to people submitting questions to me, just, just so you know, there's obviously a lot of interest in this topic. And so let's jump right in. So you've written this book, and I think it, it's relatively new. It's only been out maybe four or five months, and it's called Climate Adaptation Finance and Investment in California. So in, in a nutshell, and we're going to dig into the, the, the contents a bit more, but, you know, just briefly, what's it all about? You know, this is a book that helps us think about some core concepts of adaptation, resilience, primarily within the categorical variants of engineering resilience and community resilience, hazard mitigation, and even coping. And thinking about how we take these concepts and the associated analysis and analytical models and knowledge behind these concepts and begin to think about investment and think about it at an asset level and at a program level, but also as a portfolio of things that we make investments in. And this is all within the context of the state of California, which in many ways is like a small country, right? 
It's I think the world's fifth largest economy, and it has a, a tremendous amount of complexity and diversity and institutions and geography, people, ecologies, and the whole thing. So in many ways, it's, it represents a, a significant challenge. But at the same time, there's leadership at both the executive and legislative ends of government um, to advance and begin to institutionalize methods and processes so that we can understand what are the trade-offs. Because there's no such thing as absolute adaptation as an absolute good. Resilience, of course, we've talked about many times. Resilience is definitely not an absolute good. There's trade-offs that come along with everything. So this is really opening the door to perhaps in plain language or more simplified understanding of how we can identify the true costs, maybe the full, a more full range of benefits. And what do we get? What do we get? And what do we give up when we make investments? And, and I think it's a, it's a useful first step. Okay, and I since you, you you do mention it in the book that you hope that this has a wide application. This isn't just about California, even though this was is targeted at California in many ways. It has value outside of the state of California. Yeah, I, I think that uh, we use California as a test bed here, certainly with the support of various uh, stakeholders, public, private, and civic. But really, this this can be applied uh, in any jurisdiction in the world. So you didn't write this just because you were interested in the topic. Was there some history behind you actually writing this book? There are certainly people within the state of California and their executive leadership that recognize that the necessity of adaptation and developing some guiding principles uh, for state agencies, but also local government, county, municipal governments. And I think we can talk about that as a planning exercise in somewhat abstract terms. But when it comes down to dollars and cents, not necessarily economics, but primarily more oriented towards asset management, investment, finance, a little bit more applied and a little bit more resolute scale, there was a real desire to connect these these worlds. And uh, it was a task that I was up for. And in fact, in recent years, much of my work has really been all across the country and primarily engaged at a federal level. So actually having the opportunity to work at the state level, I learned a lot, actually. Um, and I think it's a tremendous opportunity, particularly as California is among many states, of course, which provides real leadership in this regard. Well, I thought that was fascinating. I think you actually spent some time in California I think last summer. But w- what's your assessment? And since you don't work for the state of California, you can be as honest as you possibly can. Is this how does adaptation align with mitigation in California? California has such a great reputation of just really being aggressive on the mitigation side. But as you are in the thick of the adaptation, is it just the sort of like ignored stepbrother? I mean, where is it kind of fitting in? No, I think it fits in very clearly within guidance and Here's a good example. They have cap and trade dollars, right? So about 60% of the money that comes in from cap and trade gets allocated uh, uh, pursuant to uh, allocations that the legislature has made in Sacramento. If you look within that guidance, particularly in the, uh, in the last year, they have made very precise guidelines for how they spend money that supports adaptation but also has the co-benefits of supporting climate mitigation goals. Now, there's an awful lot of adaptation that's self-serving anthropogenically, of course, that is in direct conflict with mitigation goals and outcomes. But I think they are quite sensitive to the fact that, that there are some real opportunities to achieve both, whether it's housing or transportation or any number of opportunities for investment. I think they're very keen on that. I think what is less well-developed across Really around the world is where are those conflicts and how would, how should we, how should we resolve those conflicts where, um, what we determine to be necessary adaptation, let's say just concrete somewhere for something it has, you know, significant implications in terms of our underlying carbon footprint. And what is the sustainable allocation of resources necessary to perpetuate the processes of adaptation? Um, so I think California is making some some real strides uh, in terms of quantifications necessary to at least have transparency in what those trade-offs are. And that's a necessary first step. Okay, before I forget, and the, the book is free, right? If people want to get the book, they can get it free digitally. Yes, thanks to a generous contribution from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, you can get the ebook for free online. 
Okay, yeah, and I, I highly recommend it. You know, listen, it it can get very technical, but I thought it was very readable too, and it, it's just a laundry list of resources, and it walks you through this whole process. I think you've done a magnificent job, Jesse, of making this topic, I think, a bit more approachable. I mean, it's a report, but at the same time, if you folks out there, if you're involved with adaptation, you, you need to be reading through this because it kind of gives you, uh, I think, a lay of the land. So I think well done on that respect, Jesse. Well, I would just say it's for potential readers who want to pay for adaptation or find some kind of economic justification for the interventions that they want to make in the name of adaptation, then, yeah, this is useful for sure. Well, and, you know, listen, I'm going to hype it a bit more is that even though it kind of gets technical and it, it digs into some of these issues, at the same time, I think it represents a broad look at adaptation that I think a lot of folks aren't really looking at that level. And it's important that they're seeing the context of where, where they're kind of fitting in. And I think you do a good job of maybe it's your worldview based on your own experiences and such, but there's not a lot of that going on. And so I think it's useful in that respect. Well, I'd hope, I'd like to think that there's some scholarly foundation in the underlying references and citation, which got us here. But I'd also like to think that this is all as much about maladaptation as it is adaptation, right? And giving some clarity and some representation of the idea that we're looking for maladaptation as much as we're looking for adaptation in what we're trying to engage in. And I think that these are necessary counterpoints for all of us. Okay, so when I was doing some additional research for this episode, you look for like adaptation financing. If you're even doing those basic search terms, like the first stuff that comes back is all the international stuff. And you know what I'm talking about here, like a lot of the international development and very little in regards to domestic financing adaptation. Can you give me or give people a kind of understanding why is that? Well, I mean, much of the international discourse as it relates to various conferences of parties over many decades now has had a subtext, which is the underlying justice or equity implications associated with developing world paying for the carbon of the developed world. And adaptation has been that, has been the chips by which we've proceeded with these various negotiations. And therefore, there's been a lot of money that has gone into various adaptation funds as a type of compensation to help transform these economies and societies in a way that offers some measure of resilience and adaptive capacity. So I think in many ways, it's just several decades ahead because it's been part of a, a sort of global order of, 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 of politics. I think we have to draw a distinction between financing and funding. I think a lot of times what we're really talking about is funding, which is really quite distinct from the market mechanisms and conduits and transactional nature of financing. In fact, the financing component is pretty straightforward. It's about finding value, leveraging that value, understanding the distribution of risk between parties, and moving forward and debt and equity. It's, it's that simple. I think what's more challenging is understanding the role of public and private institutions in making the provision of revenue necessary to instigate or stimulate financing. And I think that comes to a more fundamental question, um, even domestically, about where are we going to make these investments uh, and why? Yeah, to be perfectly honest, I probably still get confused that, that the, the issue of financing versus funding. In my head, it's always about the funding, just sort of like funding this or funding that. And the finance aspect is just it's my own unfamiliar with the topic. So it, it's good to clarify. Yeah, I think you I think, Doug, in many ways, you've come at it for, for years and your 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 practices and your leadership in from the government. Right. You worked in the in the public sector and the civic sector. And therefore, you think of funding as a kind of moral obligation of government and society to invest in itself in these regards. And and in many ways, it's not a pure public-private division here, but financing is merely tapping into existing flows of capital associated with private market capitalism. There's costs and benefits, there's trade-offs, there's some good things, and there's some bad things about that. And I think we kind of have to make these these delineations between funding and financing because there's all kinds of things there's plenty of money in the world for financing right there's plenty of debt and the question is in terms of equity or however else we want to judge our outcomes and what we do in life ethically morally economically however you know we can put all kinds of debt on society to pay for all kinds of adaptation interventions and investments but they may have limited life they may benefit few over the many it may be very uneven in its utility so I think this is just about clarity and some discipline about what's what are we really 
wanting to do here with ourselves and where do we really want to invest? You had a section on climate services, and I thought that was really interesting. And you had sort of walking through that there's a lot of groups that are kind of coming online. There's a lot of big data information. And quite frankly, it's a, and I've talked about this before. And I don't know if you listened to the the Jupiter Intel Rich Sorkin episode. And we had just discussion because what they do is they, they're sort of a, a big data kind of crunching a modeler firm. And so I asked him that how can you find, I mean, it doesn't sound like he's lacking for business, but at the same time, part of it is just how do you convince the right people that you need these services now? And I, I think that's part of the issues that you bring up in the book is that, you know, you've got all this information coming in, but are the right people even realizing that they need to tap into this information? I think what you're reading into this is a certain skepticism about what these various climate service firms are doing and and the proprietary nature of data and how they analyze that data and how they share that with you, particularly when you're talking about situations where public entities, which provide public data, are essentially licensing their own data back to themselves, but it's processed in a different kind of way, which on some cases, okay, in terms of in the intellectual property implications, but in other cases, I think fundamentally challenges the nature of of the publicness of data and information. And, and, and the idea is that, you know, listen, I, I think very highly of Jupiter and Rich and, and many others who founded that company. In many ways, it will help facilitate greater resolution of the costs and, and the pricing associated with climate change and everything from breakfast to the, you know, the gas we put in our car or whatever, or the mortgage and insurance, the whole thing. But at the end of the day, I think, and what I try to get at in that chapter is that we really need to be quite skeptical here because, listen, Silicon Valley is totally full of it. You think that there are some kind of liberal progressives in, in California that are driving good for you know global good and climate change. They're not. They fund people who promote disinformation and climate change. They're engaged on a full spectrum of capitalist sectors with a mindset for making money. The public interest is not in there necessarily a component of anything other than their market share. So we need to be deeply skeptical about the aggregation of data, particularly publicly supported data and the public infrastructure behind that data and the extent to which it's being sold and manipulated to our own detriment. And certainly it's not doing anything right now for promotion of collective engagement. And I'm no radical socialist. If anything, I'm a radical centrist about solving practical problems. But I think we need to come to terms with the nature and the parameters of intellectual property as we get better measurement science, as we get better hardware for collecting data and information to pick up the signal intelligence about not just the manifestations of climate change, but the manifestations of the first and second order impacts of climate change. And this is a conversation that state legislatures and the federal government needs to have. Who owns what and how are we going to engage with that information? Because you know what? We know that like all data science and analysis, there's all kinds of bias and preference that's built into that, into those, into this kind of algorithmic view and parametric view of the world. So the question is, what agency are we going to have to control that in favor of collective action? Right now, Silicon Valley has completely corrupted itself in favor of the public good, in favor of their own market share. Wow. In, in relation to that, and I think a lot of this is you correcting my misperceptions of what I'm reading there, but I, I, I think of financing and even in that chapter, talking about climate communications, and I, and I look at adaptation, I still think we're just scratching the surface. The point of this podcast was just to create a little bit more awareness around the issue, and we have a long way to go, and you get to the point where people are comfortable investing in bonds and other types of finances. It, can you finance major initiatives in climate communication. Was I sort of misreading that? To me, that seems like maybe hmm. one of the phases associated with what do we really want to finance in? And unless we get the public and maybe even kind of end users, even basic level of understanding, is it worth financing the communication? No, that's really interesting. You know, what I think I was really getting at was the necessity to make some basic investments in an infrastructure of intelligence that's really bilateral. In the sense that we're reaching people, not just agencies and asset managers and those and accountants and actuarialists who, by, by the way, we need to set up more finite system of accounting so that we can really fully understand the full spectrum of what's at risk, what's conditionally at risk and, and, and really 
the, the parameters of how we were making public investment, but we need to have greater connectivity in both the citizenry and among a broader set of constituents about the nature of climate change. And, you know, maybe that just feeds into the kind of climate services, you know, big data myth that there's some technological opportunity here. It also a bit feeds into the myth that somehow through greater data and information, we will have greater clarity about a solution. I think it works to the clarity and resolution of the problem, but not the solution. Because if we know anything, it's that the idea of consensus through data is not really a thing, right? Consensus is about face-to-face. It's about emotion. It's about human engagement. It's about leadership. It's about people taking risks. It's not about the kind of aggregation of data and information. It's two separate things. But I think fundamentally we need better and more transparent bilateralism in how we collect that information and how we communicate and disseminate objective analysis um, that people can use, whether they're buying a home and that home and that property has been flooded multiple times uh, or the future costs of buying a car with a carbon tax on their gasoline, what that really means to their household budget, whatever these things are. I think we have much to do, and I think that supporting even journalism uh, and climate journalism or objective outlets of, of climate information uh, should be a part of that as a, as, a, as a function of civic investment. Oh, yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to project onto what you're, you're saying here is that, you know, I, I was thinking, I'm looking back to, like, even World War II, and, you know, remember all this sort of propaganda that, I don't know, if just the U.S. government, I don't know if the private sector got involved, but it's like, the, the around the purpose of this sort of shared sacrifice, and we have to do this, this, and this, and are there finance needs to kind of do that around climate communications? Is that big a deal? We really need to not just piecemeal getting the public involved. And so, again, I think I was projecting a bit, but I thought also there was an opportunity that kind of big money gets into the, the communication sphere. Listen, we have a long history of censorship in America that has worked in tandem with political communications that have mobilized and demobilized people around an awful lot. If we really wanted to mobilize public will and support for climate change in the United States, we could do that. Uh, you can question the methods, uh, but there's no doubt that we have that capacity. It's a function of will. Yeah, and I know propaganda typically is associated with being negative, but at the same time, if, if it's going around a positive outcome, then maybe there's some value to it. So, Listen, I have no problem with censorship. We have a long history of censorship. There's all kinds of things that we already censor. Uh, I think we need to be clear about that maybe there are some things we should be censoring. And, and let's start with one. Let's start with disinformation. Let's, two, start with disinformation around the nature of climate change. We can have debates as to the parameters of scientific debate, but I think the, you know, what we saw recently with Meet the Press, I think is a really interesting phenomenon. So Meet the Press on NBC had uh, a climate denialist on there. They gave equal weight to that. I reached out to the president of NBC and NBC News, and I said, listen, BBC has very specific guidelines about journalism, uh, about how you report climate change, and what you guys did is not in the advancement of truth, as is your ethical obligation as journalists. Maybe you should look at what the BBC and others have done to set guidelines for reporting and journalism. This isn't a function of censorship. This is a function of disciplined advancement of truth. And I think to their credit, they listened, and then we saw a really wonderful episode a couple weeks ago on climate change. That was serious discussion about what's for debate. And I think that, you know, whether it's censorship or disinformation, which we have to wrestle with between public and private obligations and the legalistic implications of that, or whether it's just greater discipline in our own lives about how we approach these subjects and the subjectivity of these subjects and debates is, is it's all up for debate. And I think we need as much action in that realm as we need in investment or financing of material assets. On behalf of many people, thank you for doing that reach out. I, I think I remember December Chuck Todd, uh, he made a, a specific announcement that they'll no longer, I think, give space to the deniers. And so that was progress. Well, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of progress. Again, I, People need to look at BBC's journalistic guidelines related to climate change. I think we need uh, best practices here, and I think we all need to get on board. And that and that's true uh, for all the major networks and for people on you. I mean, look at YouTube. 
you go on YouTube, and I watch all kinds of content on YouTube relating to science, lectures, even stupid things for my own entertainment value. But you wouldn't believe how much misinformation, disinformation I get in my feed about climate change. It's unbelievable. They make money off that part of the system. You're engaged in it whether you like it or not. Uh, I think that's a huge moral failing of society and of Google to allow that to perpetuate. All right. I'm going to pivot a little bit here back to the book. You you have a section in the book about social equity. I'm wondering if you could quickly kind of summarize that and then, you know, just have a few follow up questions to that. You know, I I get frustrated sometimes that in conversations about social equity, we really don't have the analytical discipline that we need with social equity. Right. Because there's a couple we can start in one place. We can make a division between procedural justice and the nature of process and participation in the process. And then we can talk about distributive benefits or distributive equity, how we distribute limited resources to the benefit of those who have been marginalized or have been historically marginalized. And so what I offer in this book is an opportunity methodologically to think about the unequal benefits of investments and adaptation, how we can reweight our calculation of how people benefit, right? So a person, you give $1 to a millionaire and you give $1 to a person who makes minimum wage, they have very unequal utility values, right? So I provide a very simple methodology about how we can reweight the value of our investment so that we can understand the consequences and let's say the positive um, externalities, if you will, of the implications of our investment. So it's, it's, it's a really kind of simple method to go forward to allow local governments and really anybody Think about, well, who benefits, who bears the cost, and what is the more precise benefit and amplified benefit to those of lesser means? I thought that was fascinating that you actually had this formula approach to it. And again, in my, I think, naive hopefulness is that I wonder if adaptation really offers this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And there's going to be winners and losers, but if we really want to tackle social uh, you know, inequity, that if we do adaptation right, and those sort of the guidance that even you provide is that maybe we can kind of level the playing field that we've never really had a chance to do before we've never been serious about. And if we do it in the framework of adaptation, we might get a little bit closer to that. And I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just that sort of naive hope. Listen, there's plenty of qualitative subjectivity here about even the, the set of ostensibly quantitative calculations. But I think what you're getting at is one of the potential opportunities of transformation and transformative adaptation, which are rewriting the rules of everything. Let's try not to make mistakes of the past. Let's move forward in a way that actually engages the sustainability in what we're doing going forward. And again, sustainability has its own sort of limitations in a way, but I think we can recognize that there is an opportunity for greater accessibility um, to transit, to healthcare, to access to the resources of our world that are perhaps lesser in their environmental impact and perhaps more fair in their measure of accessibility. Okay, you said it much better than I did. Thank you. <laughs> Again, so you talk about all sorts of funding sources, and, and the book could be an endless source. Of, you could do multiple podcasts on just the book itself, but I have my own interest in my own previous uh, lives of being a fed or nonprofit about funding sources for adaptation in my own tiny little universe i always look toward foundations and you'd mentioned this a little bit but could you talk a little bit about foundations are they significant sources of adaptation funding are they getting more into the space or are they stepping back i don't think we should rely on foundations for anything foundations have their own ambition to serve their own present value constituencies they have to raise money they have their own interests in terms of power and the like you know, they do great things, but we have to understand the limitations of that, right? We can't just rely in society on foundations to fill the vacuum of what government should be doing, right? But that being said, that healthy dose of skepticism, foundations can play a very important role in taking inordinate risks, that is, lose everything in their investment, um, that help stimulate the type of localized experiments that we need to see what works and what doesn't work. And I think in many ways that they're they have the opportunity to help make markets, help test prototypes, to help guide experimentation that very often is very difficult for local governments to do. For instance, I chair an advisory group that's really running something called Keeping Current in Miami, supported by a number of different foundations, including the Knight Foundation, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, 
And we just created a um, RFQ, Request for Qualifications. We're gonna, we have a real project that's funded by the city of Miami um, to develop a public space, a park that has resilience functionality, but also adaptive capacity that serves a community in a variety of different infrastructural and urban service contexts. And, you know, it's a really risky idea to, to, to narrow the contract scope in a way that is requesting very sophisticated, highly experimental ideas from design service and engineering service providers. And, you know, foundation played a very important role in getting that going and moving the moving the city forward in a way that probably would have taken them a couple of years to get to, if not, if they would have ever. And I, I think they, they would have. I, I have a lot of faith in the, the leadership and administrative capacity in the city of Miami and the county. But it's, it's, a, it's a perfect example. It's just this moment of instigation. But if we think we can rely on philanthropy for much more than that, I, I think we're, we're, we're misunderstanding their role in society. Yeah, and I guess my own interactions is that I'm always curious on how they drive policy development that, you know, even the standards they set for getting a grant for them that, okay, this is what it's going to take to meet the sort of an adaptation grant. What's the basis for that? Is is there any sort of like quality control even at the foundation level or is it just the board that's sort of setting this thing? And I know they have staff people, but at the same time, they drive a lot of decisions into at the nonprofit level because everybody wants that funding. And even when you talk about even the bigger funders and you get into the bonds and such, it's just how is that going to drive policy and I guess the right way? Yeah, it's 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 hard to know. Certainly some dangerous implications in the sense that a disproportionate amount of foundations are driving um, policy development with limited, um, let's say, democratic input as to the, the nature of what those policies really are. I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but we just need to have a healthy dose of skepticism about how that process works. And I think you've highlighted it exactly right. Adaptation is still this new emerging area, and as, as you talk about in this book, uh, and I'm just curious if you're hearing anything in California, is that do you think once big money in whatever form that takes, and you, know, you have a whole list of like potential big uh, financers, is that will it like drive innovation in adaptation, or will it sort of smother it because people want that kind of certainty around what they're getting? So the question is whether if government intervention could potentially smother private market in innovation. Is that well, what you're getting at? Well, maybe, no, maybe it's, it's, a, I guess when people start investing in adaptation, that's a very simplified mm -hmm. way of doing it to meet the criteria to even to get that investment, they're going to have to, to meet criteria. And is that mm -hmm. going to s kind of stifle innovation in what is an emerging field? Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, first of all, people have always adapted. Businesses have always adapted. You, if you don't adapt to a change of market, you go out of business, right? So in the world of marketing and, and other business management academies, you know, adaptation has a long-standing uh, set of knowledge and practices. I think what we're really trying to advance is some guidance and uh, discipline for, for where to start. I don't think it's a limitation. I don't think that guidance is, is binding um, actors and stakeholders in a way. It's just opening the door of where to start. But I, th I do think your implications are a necessary critique going forward as this stuff becomes more precise and we begin to codify certain outcomes that we today think are good ideas, but in the future may not be such a good ideas. You know, how do we build in adaptive management or the adaptive capacity of law itself to be able to incorporate best available science or new information as things change? And become uh, perhaps more clear. And I think it's, it's, it's a, it represents a real challenge. But I think what we're trying to do is just say, hey, here's a place to start. Here's some parameters. Here's a, here's a, here's a box to draw within. Draw outside the box if you want, but let's start and let's start somewhere. Are there any specific projects, and I guess even in California specifically, an adaptation finance project and that sort of meet some of the criteria that you even laid out in the book of like, okay, this is the process you go through. You had like a four-step process. Are there any massive projects underway or completed in California? Well, this is just recently issued. I think it's too premature to see the totality of the impact. Certainly, uh, what we set out is not a, a linear process. It's really just trying to understand where you are within the realm of different modes of analysis and decision making, just to give yourself some context about where to where you can step back and where you can move forward. So, again, we're not really trying to 
bound people within a, in a kind of, you do this and then you do this and then you do that. We're really trying to help contextualize what, what you may be thinking about, maybe what you should be thinking about, what you might have forgotten about altogether. But there are, that being said, through various programs that we highlight in the book, there's, there's all, there's all kinds of projects that are being advanced in the name of adaptation, um, all throughout the state that I think have reciprocally benefited in fact, from the research of what it took over um, the number, of, uh, the amount of time it took to research and engage constituencies across the state of California to write this book with OPR and the governor's office, I think it definitely has a positive impact. One thing that comes to mind is the, the Ocean Protection Council in California you know, has this, this is just an example, has this wonderful program where they've helped finance the netting and the fishing equipment uh, for the maritime industry and the fisheries rather because they're catching different fish you know the, the rain shifting is associated with different fisheries is is challenging uh, what they do and how they catch fish and when they catch them and the size and the weight and the whole thing and so part of adaptation for them is using different equipment at different times of the year and they, they have a financing program to support that so you know that it's a full spectrum of activities it's hard to know. I think it's perhaps premature to see the impact now, but I hope in a couple of years we can look back and see some positive momentum. Okay, I want to talk a little bit at a national level. Is that it's almost become sort of a national punchline, but the, the talk of a, a giant infrastructure bill where we're going to do all this funding of infrastructure, hopefully at some point that'll come. But have you heard uh, of anyone advocating in any of the discussions within Congress or within the right lobbyists that adaptations trying to be built into the, to the, those efforts, even though I think we're a long way from a bill. Well, certainly engineering resilience and the framing of disaster resilience and hazard mitigation has been a major component of this. And of course, all of these allied concepts fit within a broader field of adaptation. And there's no doubt that this is a necessary component of uh, what it means to make uh, investments in everyday assets. And in many ways, this highlights what we're trying to get at in the book is that, and this is backed up by years of empirical evidence. You know, people don't just go out and make adaptation investments. They make regular old investments about building a bridge or developing some social program. And there's some adaptive capacity. There's some incremental element that speaks to the robustness and the performance of that asset or program. That's what you're really investing in. So it's really that incremental cost. It's part of a broader capital structure of how you make these investments. So I think that conversation, as it relates to different infrastructural sectors, is definitely, I think, central to not only the private sector's orientation in terms of the uh, architecture, engineering, and construction community about how to do it the right way, but it's also um, framing how, you know, Department of Homeland Security FEMA, USGS, the General Services Administration, I could go on and on, increasingly their level of sophistication about what to request and what to demand of design and engineering services to make sure that we are getting this right, or let's say we, we may not be getting it right, we may not know if we're getting it right, but we can at least build in these capacities to mitigate risk and perhaps take advantage of opportunities. And Oh, by the way, that's the definition of, of adaptation. It's not just the managing of risk and uncertainty, but it's also the taking advantage of opportunities. And uh, so I actually feel pretty good that the sophistication is increasingly manifesting itself. And for as much as Puerto Rico, by example, is certainly a horrible and is currently a horrible set of circumstances, conditions, it does represent, like Hurricane Sandy, um, an awful lot of experimentation about getting it right, getting it wrong. And, and so I think we, it's a test bed, and I think I think a lot of positive things will come from that uh, in Puerto Rico that will benefit everybody else in the United States. At least I hope so. Okay, I wanted you to speculate a little bit here. And when I th think this is the <laughs> the cynic in me is that when you start bringing a lot of money into to something, you get it. People are going to exploit that. There's going to be fraud. And I think of what's a famous example? They they were selling tulips in the Dutch back in the 1500s or something, where it was all the speculation and then real estate bubbles. Is that going to happen with adaptation that when big money comes in and they're going to sort of look at the holes in the information and we're going to have the an Enron of adaptation or the the, the big short? Do, do you see that coming? Well, I think what you're skirting around is the you know, idea of disaster capitalism and the extent to which as we have increasingly greater occurrence and perhaps intensity of extreme events and we have recovery dollars and dollars that are geared towards perhaps resilience or hazard mitigation, 
the, you know, the sectors of disaster capitalism mobilize themselves around assets, particularly material assets that are of limited duration and of limited utility, right? And so that's a huge problem. Sometimes adaptation means doing nothing. We can think about that as an options analysis or opportunity cost or any number of things. There's a lot of different strategies associated with adaptation. And it isn't always about building something. And certainly if you want to look at the conflicts between engineering resilience and ecological resilience, that's a good place to begin to understand those conflicts and trade-offs. Sometimes they're synergistic with green infrastructure. But the big picture here, which I think you're highlighting, is that disaster capitalism plays an outsized role in advocacy and how we think about risk sharing. And it's not just the risk that's in those designs, but how society bears the different risks of what it means to finance, pay for the debt service, and the operations and costs, CapEx and OpEx, associated with uh, these infrastructures uh, and these material assets over their life. So it's something we need to be critical of. It can be a catalyst for mobilization, which is the kind of industrial mobilization we probably need, but it can also quickly work against us if we build a bunch of crap that we don't really I want to wrap up this part of it, but I just, I'm curious, what's next in regards to this book and your, in your work with the state of California? Uh, you've alluded to it a, a little bit, but what, what are they planning to do with it? Well, I just wrapped up my appointment. My appointment was through Governor Brown, and I think it remains to be unseen. I think there's a, a lot of continuity that will happen with the new administration. I have a lot of faith that these efforts will, um, actually become amplified and, and distributed and diffused in, in a very positive manner, but, it's a new administration. They're just getting their feet. I think well, it'll take some time to, to realize that, but I really have all the faith in the world that they're going to take this forward. My work uh, is primarily centered, at least in California or really nationally, uh, with the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and our partners across the country in engaging climate adaptation and community development and community investment, primarily as it relates to Community Reinvestment Act, um, as well as a couple of other uh, activities uh, so I think uh, I think California is in good hands, and I think now it's time to turn at least my personal attention to the state of Massachusetts, to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and the state of Florida, where we have an awful lot of work. And there's, uh, I think, um, some supporting executive leadership that is beginning to think about the idea of pooled funds, trust funds, and beginning to aggregate capital. I think the question now is it's easy to raise the money and perhaps less easy to get the governance structures but it's no matter what path we go down, it's about disciplined analysis so that people who are making decisions in democratic societies can determine about what to protect and what to let go, what to invest in, what to disinvest in, and all of the subjectivity and objectivity that comes with that. So there's plenty of work to do. There's plenty of leadership, and we uh, will be busy for the rest of my life. Okay, adapters, we'll get back to Jesse in a minute. Just a few updates. I've mentioned before, and I will be mentioning this in every podcast, we started this resource, Podcast in the Classroom. So if you're interested in using America Adapts in your classroom for students or even professional workshops, check it out. It's being led by Kate Bishop-Williams out of the University of Waterloo in Canada. Basically, each episode, Kate and a small team listen to the most recent episode of America Adapts, then develop discussion guides that will be available in the show notes. So for my last guest you can go into those show notes and find the discussion guides. These discussion guides have questions and other resources that should help you in the classroom. Of course, come up with your own questions. These are just questions to help guide you through those episodes. Also, quick thanks to Mitchell at Climate Monitor. Climate Monitor is a TV channel you can download on your smart TV. Just look it up. It's one of those apps. They are putting up some of my episodes on that station so you can watch America Daps. They have a lot of other great content showcasing climate work all over the world. Please check them out. And thanks again to Sarah Wessler for designing my website. It's been live now for a few months, but I just want to say all the awesome feedback that I've been getting on the website, and thanks to Sarah for doing it. It's an amazing job. Check it out. Okay, just a reminder, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. If I'm going to do any traveling, if I'm going to go on location for all the technical things that I have, your support allows all that to happen. So please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to the We Did It Donate page. That's just the service that does it through my fiscal sponsor. Also, if you're interested in partnering and sponsoring a specific podcast, let me know. 
There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future one. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at public or corporate events, please reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are so much fun. I share stories from the podcast and the stories that my guests bring and my own experiences in adaptation. I will talk about this issue in ways that will motivate you and inspire you. You can contact me at the website americaadapts.org. Okay, adapters, let's get back and find out what's going on with the state of adaptation with Jesse Keenan. All right, so we are doing a massive pivot here. I want to do this. Uh, hopefully, this is going to be a new thing, folks. Is we're calling it the state of adaptation with Jesse Keenan, and I'm going to ask these big questions. Many of these questions I actually got from other folks. I asked them to submit, and uh, I got some really great ones. First question is, what do you see as the emerging priorities for adaptation? Yeah, I think the emerging pr- priorities for adaptation is that we have a lot of people in different disciplines, in different fields, speaking a different language about hazard mitigation, risk mitigation, resilience, of all the varieties of resilience, ecological, socio-ecological, urban, disaster, engineering, and the like. We have incremental, transitional, and fundamentally transformative adaptation. We have a lot of different language. I think our first priority is to begin, and there's a lot of knowledge behind that, is to begin to synthesize that and build a set of heuristics that can bring some common elements to our discourse and our analysis. If we don't do that, we're all just going to be speaking different languages and going our own routes, and we'll just create more problems than we're necessarily solving or framing. First challenge, let's just get the language right, and let's get our models of ideas behind those that language. Um, let's get it right. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot. It's just driving to that question a little bit more. I'm going to give you some sectors, and if you just had to order them of importance, and this is priorities, that your own impression of the priority that the society is kind of going around, what order would you put them in? Infrastructure, agriculture, water security, disaster management, and conservation. Okay, conservation is going to come at the bottom because we've always put conservation <laughs> at the bottom okay. in the United States, right? Um, right, it's, right. I, I, I'm not making this. This is not my determination. I would put conservation very high up there, but that's the state of things. Agriculture is also, uh, I think, politically um, quite low at the bottom. I mean, we are huge trade war with huge implications for agriculture right now. And it seems unusual to me that that uh, the pain that the agricultural sector is facing in the United States has not pushed greater stimulus or action in a way that that highlights to me that that uh, it, it, it ranks as a low priority, I think, collectively in, in our public discourse and political discourse. I think infrastructure is uh, somewhere in the middle. I think disaster recovery is towards the top. And I think probably water security uh, may, in fact, be the number one issue of mobilization right now across the country. And again, this is not my determination. This is my sort of assessment of other people's collective determination. If you look at the new Republican governor, in, in Florida, he's kind of in a very kind of pro-environment stance in very early on in this term now the past month. I think he's done a lot of things that have addressed water, water quality, but certainly we are at a crisis in the United States about the quality, availability, and long-term availability of potable water. Nevertheless, how we manage storm water, how we deal with irrigation and water availability, and the conflicts, particularly out west, the conflicts for um, how we distribute water, primarily between agricultural and human settlement. So, in my mind, water is is actually the number one the number one issue that I think is driving a lot of decision making. Do you think there's adequate political pressure on elected officials at all levels to ensure adaptation is on the agenda? Yeah, of course not. But I think what we've seen in recent weeks and perhaps in recent years is a is a youth movement that is totally mobilized around climate change in a way that I I wasn't alive in the late 1960s, but there was a kind of radicalism there of transformation that I think is driving much of the intent of youth movements today. And I, I think that's that will begin to really resonate. Frankly, we already see it with, with the, the new crop of in the House of Representatives. There's a strong youth components to that organization and that political mobilization there that I, I think is, a, is very positive. 
Okay, so I was just recently asked to to give a keynote here at the University of Arizona to the Model UN. So I'm going to be presenting on adaptation in front of 600 high school students. So I might follow up with you for a couple ideas of what might resonate. So, but hey, uh, first, let's start with one place, which is let's challenge social media for what it really is and what it represents. And then I think people can have greater reflection on their own agency to affect change. Where is adaptation action most prominent, local, state, federal, or international? I think right now, well, certainly uh, Europe, Australia, Japan, the Philippines, there's a number of countries, Brazil, uh, that are perhaps more advanced in their institutionalization of various um, of processes that we would attribute to adaptation. But I think here in the United States, it's the states. There are a handful of states that are really taking um, significant leaderships and strides in, in mainstreaming adaptation and mitigation across their bureaucratic and administrative elements and forcing a lot of local governments to either take advantage of that or come to terms with the, uh, the cost of not doing so. And if you think about it, local governments aren't really incentivized to do much. The status quo serves them well. Our politics are sort of set up for the status quo. But I think we have some really powerful governors around the country that are, are taking some real leadership. And frankly, this is both Democrats and Republicans. So I think the states are really where the activity is now. Okay, I have a strong opinion on this next question, but I want to see what you say. How well are we doing integrating the topic of adaptation and climate risk management across disciplines in higher education? Is it still something taught as standalone course, or are we seeing it more into programmatic areas? I think adaptation is playing out uh, across universities in a couple of different fields, um, but there's some major challenges there. One, there's not a lot of people that teach this stuff. Two, we haven't really at a university level taught the basic principles of climate literacy. You know, NOAA has a great guidelines for teachers out there of all levels on the basic principles of climate literacy. But I think even here at Harvard or my students at MIT, you ask, uh, you know, give me some basic ideas of, you know, rating enforcing and what, you know, watts per meter square, what's the differential? What are we really looking at here? You have no idea what you're talking about. So our literacy in climate change itself is really quite low. I start every class that I teach in this regard with teaching the basic fundamentals of the science of climate change uh, and the implied science associated with climate change uh, and adaptation science itself, paradigmatic science, if you will. But I think we need to come to terms with a, a, a general curriculum in the United States that all undergraduates should have some exposure to the principles of climate change, and then perhaps graduate programs and maybe even undergraduate programs can tease out the methodological and disciplinary basis for more resolute practices in, in this field. I get that a lot from listeners that they're interested in, in pursuing an adaptation career in, in, in regards to sort of training or, you know, going to university. There's just not a lot there for them. So it's sort of the, it's a makeshift at the moment. Well, I think adaptation is coming in a lot of different ways. In terms of training and executive education and continuing education, that all plays a major role. Um, the American Institute of Architects just rolled out a major series on uh, resilience and adaptation. I should say both training for architects for continuing education and certification. It's amazing. It's a fantastic program. So, you know, it isn't just about getting a college degree. It isn't just about college educated people. Uh, I think there's trades uh, of all sorts and professions of all sorts that can benefit from the, this, this type of thinking and analysis. Okay, you might not even agree with the premise of this question, but how does adaptation avoid the missteps of sustainability or the sustainability movement, if you, if you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I actually think it's a really good question because, you know, there actually is a lot to learn from in as we institutionalize adaptation, codify it, proceduralize it begin to kind of standardize what we how we think about it for better or for worse. And there's actually a lot to be learned about the um, steps and missteps of sustainability in that regard. I don't think we're too far off in terms of the subjectivity and the goals that we seek. I think the real challenge for us, the major challenge in many ways, is not having maladaptation be part of that conversation. So if we just perpetuate adaptation as a kind of post-rationalization of whatever we do being good. And it's, of course, going to be a good outcome because it's adaptation without understanding maladaptation, or at least analyzing it, and providing it as a set of part of our, our discourse and our conversations and our analysis. 
then we're going to just, we're going to run the kind of greenwashing problem, right? It's going to be, it's going to become meaningless. So we have to provide meaning. And part of that meaning is conflict. Part of that meaning is synergy. And part of that meaning is transparency and what we're trying to get at. And I think sustainability had that challenge uh, for a long time. I think it's something we have to come to terms with. Okay, so are climate change research organizations shifting to include adaptation in their funding models? And if they are, if they want to, how should they potentially be framing the to get access to research funding? And I guess this is a question about, is there enough adaptation research going on? Yeah, it's interesting. I think in certain sectors and uh, coastal sector, in, in uh, certain civil engineering, environmental engineering realm, uh, in agriculture, there's some very strong, robust levels of funding uh, to promote research. I think in other areas, it's quite weak. Actually, another strong, a very strong area right now is public health as well. But, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, I think one proposition that I would raise for people who may find themselves on the fringe, maybe in social sciences, for instance, is think about how they can become part of a team. Problems tend to be sort of unidimensional in their orientation. And so therefore, oh, yeah, that's a civil engineering problem or that's a, you know, a public health problem. But in fact, it requires a lot of different perspectives. And, you know, one of the things I've found very valuable in the work that we do is we participate in a lot of different groups in thinking about, okay, well, what is the social science or finance or the policy? What do we know about design that can contribute to a problem that's not necessarily in our domain of knowledge, but we become allied to and we can actually facilitate. And that multi and transdisciplinarity, I think, is necessary for solving problems or at least giving some options to solve problems. So I think it requires a little bit of an expanding expansion of your of your capacity to engage a broader set of problems. And and for a lot of people, that may be very uncomfortable because it's outside of your domain of competency and others in the academy may judge you as stepping outside of your bounds. But you know, if you just follow the academy, you wouldn't even get into climate adaptation anyway. So once you're in this world, you have to come to terms with it. You're running the risk of the academy just isolating you anyway. I feel like this concept is not completely dead, but pretty much dying is the notion that if you start focusing on adaptation, you've given up on mitigation in your own kind of encounters with people. What are your thoughts on this notion that remember back in the day that, that adaptation used to be disparaged for feeling like you're giving up? Well, that was formally dismissed in Paris as a formal resolution of the the uh, logical trade-off that was framed there. I think many, many people uh, today, in uh, particularly in the public sector, still really push the idea of co-benefits or synergies between adaptation and mitigation. I fully support that ambition, but I would also support the idea that that it's more complicated than we think because it's really about netting out the implications of the conflict. So there's all kinds of adaptation that is going to really put a dent or conversely create a greater carbon footprint, frankly. The question is over what time horizon and how long does that last and are there residual benefits that may actually reduce externally the carbon footprint? You know, a good example of that is urban density, right? So urban density is uh, is going to increase our carbon footprint uh, in terms of a lot of different types of uh, energy use and like, but it could in the long run reduce our carbon footprint in terms of a, a patternization if it offers greater access to mass transit, for instance. So it's it's difficult to think about a full life cycle of how these relate to each other. And frankly, the empirical evidence is not positive. The empirical evidence suggests that most adaptation is in direct conflict with mitigation. There's been a lot of research around the world about this and that there's very few what people call win-win strategies. So I think if we move away from the idea that it's a win-win and we begin to just kind of net it out and think about a true life cycle assessment, um, then we can make a better informed judgment about what we're trying, what are the goals that we're trying to solve? But at the same time, I, I fully support the, the ambition. I just think that it's, it's limited uh, at the end of the day. Okay. Those are great. I, I want to wrap this up with a few, uh, maybe a, some lighter questions here, but gut reaction here. What is the state of adaptation podcasts? It seems to be growing really rapidly. It seems like there's a lot of people, but I think we can all come to some 
consensus that there's really only one podcast, and that's American Dabs. <laughs> you know, you can elaborate <laughs> a bit more, but I'll take that answer. And, you know, here, this uh, – and I want my listeners to know, Jesse, when we, we chat offline a bit, Jesse is the most blunt person in my, my life, even more so than, like, my, my wife, and, and I love it. He's just like, you're doing this wrong, Doug. You're doing this wrong. And I'm, I want to give you that opportunity – Without hurting my feelings or anything, it's just like okay, you've you've been a regular, long time listener to the podcast. Give, give me some feedback, holes that I'm uh, I have in my get anything like that. What 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 do you have for me? Well, and listen, I want to channel not just myself, but perhaps others on the advisory board who have ably advised you for some time now, and I think I, it's one of the, um, such a positive group of people that you you've collected around the America Adapts board and the like. I think, listen, we all want you to go for the conflict where the challenges are the conversational tone we all love it but sometimes you got to dig in deep and maybe there's awkwardness or uneasiness there but that's okay i mean we're all humans and sometimes i think you let people off a little easy but you know what every talk show host forever has had that critique but you know i think that i think the the counterpoint there is that sometimes you just have to be a human being and that means empathy even if you think the other person is kind of you know serving you something you can't necessarily agree with and maybe we're better off for not creating conflict and trying to expose a little bit of truth in that friction so that's my that's my global view as a listener okay and i appreciate that and i was actually thinking about that this morning and i i do want to get more guests like mark morano and i I think i do have a certain style that even though he's hugely controversial we end up having a relatively friendly conversation that hopefully you'll learn a lot but uh, I take it. I, I do want to do more of that, but I do. I, I, I guess I need some help in recruiting. I think I don't necessarily have controversial guests, or or you or I might even have those uncomfortable conversations come up too often. And so I need to work with you guys a bit more closely. And like, all right, you might not agree with this guy at all, and kind of get those people on. So, listen, I, this is this is the challenge of society to have a, a, a civil debate uh, and to have a conversation, even if it's about stuff that we don't necessarily uh, want to talk about or, or acknowledge. I mean. Let's do it. I mean, the worst case scenario is that we, we upset somebody. But the idea is not to upset people. It's about to find the truth in something. And, you know, I, I, I it's a tough it's a tough it's a tough job to have. All right. Well, thank you. OK. And sort of a final related to that is that I'm always just curious. And you're a celebrity in my eyes, Jesse. But why aren't there really big well-known names in adaptation like there are in mitigation you know there's like the bill mckibbins on their side but in adaptation it hasn't kind of come into that is it too early or is it the field just too wonky i mean why do you think that's the case listen i don't think i i'm a celebrity i may have some modest media impressions globally but by no means an intellectual celebrity if there were adaptation celebrities it would be like Susie moser i mean and chris flavelle i mean uh, and maybe even yourself. I think those people are out there. I think they reach kind of different audiences in, in between journalism, academy, and sort of civic leadership. But these people will arise, and, and hopefully we see some of this in Congress. Frankly, I mean, I think there's some people in the House of Representatives um, that could very well champion adaptation. So I, I, I think we're right on the verge of some B-list celebrities uh, rising up to A-list celebrities here sooner than later. Okay, I'll try to do my part. All right, so what's next for you? Uh, what's next for me? Uh, we have a lot of work here in Massachusetts and in Florida. We have a lot of work in Puerto Rico. We have a lot of work basically everywhere. I'm busy all the time. I barely have enough time to eat, sleep, or drink an adequate amount of water every day. So it just never ends. Uh, and this is, uh, this is what we dedicate our lives to, Doug. So, and it's very busy right now. And, you know, despite the kind of rhetoric of dysfunction in America, which is in fact quite strong, there's a lot of really positive things happening across the country. And, I'll, you know, I'll be in D.C. here in two weeks. Tons of activity going on in D.C., right? So I feel really good. I feel like it's not just really good about, you know, work is keeping me busy, but I think everybody in this realm is really seeing um, the urgency in the public manifest in greater action. We just need to be careful and disciplined about how we engage that action in terms of equity, in terms of economic clarity uh, in terms of a variety of different values that we determine ourselves to be adjudicated by. But it's happening. We're in it. It's moving fast. Things are changing. And that feels good. I think that feels good for a lot of people. Well, I need to have like an advisory committee meeting here in Tucson. Get you all out here. That'd be good. Maybe work on that. So uh, listen, we need to have a convention where we get listeners to come from all around the world 
come get together. Let's, let's have it out. Let's chat. And, um, I think, uh, what we represent and what you represent more precisely is a community of people. We, we cut, we don't even understand really what we're talking about sometimes, but I think we all kind of have a certain ambition to uh, find each other and, and be human beings. It's, it's part of the nature of the anthropogenic age that we live in. That's what's next. The America Daps TV show and then America Daps annual conference. We're on it. It's, it's, <laughs> I think mid to long term. Let's do it. You know this is coming. What guest would you recommend to come on America Daps? What, what am I missing? What guest? What guest? Okay, Eric Kleinberg. Just spent some time with him. Professor NYU. He's a sociologist. He's a popular, renowned for his uh, work. Less well-known, perhaps, uh, relative to his kind of popularity in other realms, is his work in climate change. And I think because he doesn't sort of consider himself as a climate change scholar or whatever, but he's also been sort of deeply involved in various activities. I think he's a really great third party neutral observer. And uh, I think his observations about the fundamental sociological implications about how we communicate, engage um, and organize around climate change and, and adaptation is really he may not. I think I would disagree with him on a few sort of structural elements of like resilience and community resilience and things like that. But I think that's immaterial. I think what's more important is his objective view on society and how we think about climate change. I think he'd be actually a great guest. Okay. Yeah. And you can put me in touch. So great, great suggestion. All right. Final topic here before we wrap this up is like, what are the missing pieces for the Georgia Bulldogs to win a national title? Listen, uh, we've got a big year ahead of us. So we need to, you know, we've got some backs that we need to get up. We've got, it's basically, we have to rebuild, but you know, we've got a great recruiting class. We've got a great coach. Uh, we have a lot of momentum. And you know, one thing that I can feel good about is that um, at least we're not the University of Florida Gators. Oh. So, um, so you know, that we have that. Oh, man, I'm going to just edit the heck out of this. So you look now the Gators came on strong. No one thought they were going to do as well as they were. They're going to start going back to stomping the Bulldogs. So it is what it is. So <laughs> Doug, how, what's the in recent years? I think we, we, we have a leg up. Um, yeah. on the record, but we'll see how it, it pans out in the future. But I'd also like to add that you are also a Georgia Bulldog in addition to being a Florida Gator, so you have a little bit of conflict of interest here. Uh, don't remind me. I got a master's at GGA, loved it, but f- the, hated the football team, so there you go. Um, well, they hate you, Doug. They hate you. <laughs> okay, Jesse, always a pleasure talking with you, even if it's not uh, on the podcast, but that was just a, a awesome episode and a lot of useful information there, but thanks again for coming on. Hey, listen, thanks for having me. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Jesse for coming on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to chat with Jesse. I learned so much. I like to think I'm pretty plugged in into the field of adaptation, but Jesse is light years ahead thinking about this issue in a deep and thoughtful way. Even though adaptation is a relatively new field, there are many academic resources available and it's growing quickly. Jesse has shared many of his articles and it's been incredibly helpful in my own journey on understanding what adaptation is. I highly recommend you dig around the work that he's doing if you want to truly understand this field. So check out Jesse's new book on adaptation finance in California. The links to that book are in the show notes. And finally, since this is my podcast and I get the last word, I'm going to say it here. The Gators are going to go on an unprecedented 10-season win streak against the Georgia Bulldogs. You heard it here first. Okay, so final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Daps and ask to join and I'll approve you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. We've had some cool conversations and some interesting links come up on that Facebook group. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I say it every time. Just say hi, or if you have an idea for a guest, let me know. And you know, I'm doing this new Letters from Adapters, where I read a letter and they share their own perspectives, and that's becoming really popular. I enjoy doing that. So reach out and send me a letter that I could potentially read on one of these episodes. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me that email. Don't forget to check out the webpage, americadaps.org. And don't forget to check out the show notes. Tons of resources in there, especially that link to the donate page. I know some of you who've been longtime listeners, you've just been itching to donate, just never got around to it. There it is right there in the show notes. Check it out. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.